Last week, for those of you who were here, we talked some what directly about meditation practice itself in this image of taking the seat in the center of our world and allowing all the experiences that make up our life to be met from the wisdom heart, from the understanding that is our own true nature, our Buddha nature. And in a way, to extend that teaching this week to you as a reminder of this Buddha nature, those of you um, who may forget on occasion, um, that the seeds of understanding and awakening and compassion are within every human heart. O nobly born, say the Buddhist texts, do not forget who you really are, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. One of the great themes in Buddhist teaching, but found in different ways, languages and spiritual teachings um, around the world, is the theme of redemption, forgiveness, moving on from the past. Um, And of course, it's easy to think about the people that are not redeemable, you know, those ones. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary simply to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So it gets a little bit more difficult when we look into the problem of good and evil um, in an honest way. And we look at who we leave out, who we would leave behind, Um, But in fact, we might look inside and say, well, who is our own inner dictator? Yes, there are plenty ruling certain countries around the world. Um, And who is our own inner fundamentalist? How many of you have an inner fundamentalist? Don't raise your hand, you know. And who in there is, if not the hanging judge, definitely the the judge and jury. Um, We carry them within ourselves. And yet, what possibility is there to change the world if we do not also face the very same forces within our own heart and mind? It's so interesting to go and do prison work. Prison work really means that you're able to go into a prison and talk to other human beings like yourself um, and learn from them as they learn from you. And my experience, for example, in talking with men who are in for the long-term lifers at San Quentin or other places, is very often the people that I talk to are, you know, 40, 45, 50 years old. um, And they did something terrible when they were 19, you know, 25 years before. And they almost can't remember who they were. I mean, can you remember who you were 25 years ago? These are really different people who have, in the course of a quarter of a century, learned, changed, um, completely become other than they were. And yet this prison industry, the kind of racist poverty prisons that keep feeding hundreds of thousands of people 
into the cages of the prisons, um, don't really take into account the possibility of change. What about our mistakes? Theirs, ours. You know the poem I love to recite from Zen master Ryokan, the most beloved of the Japanese poets, where he writes, uh, spring morning, my begging is finished, hang my bowl by the side of the Buddha shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) Here we are. Now we're about to witness the selection of a new pope. Um, And um, I always look for occasions to read certain stories, and this seems like the right occasion for this story. Um, And maybe there's something in it about... um, redeeming certain things from the, in the Christian past that aren't particularly Christian. Um, uh, anyway, as it's told, a couple of centuries ago, the Pope and the elders decided that all the Jews who had gathered around uh, Rome had to leave. Naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jewish community who had suffered um, greatly from prejudice over the years. And after the uproar, Um, the Jews proposed a deal that they would have a religious debate with the Pope and a member of the Jewish community, and if the Jews won, they could stay, and if the Pope won, all the Jews would leave. Realizing they had to make their best choice, they picked a middle-aged man named Moshe to represent them. Moshe, wise as he was, asked for one additional agreement. He said it was his custom to debate without using words. The day for the debate came, people gathered, the Pope and Moshe sat opposite each other for a full minute in silence, and then the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head. Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. Then the Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine, and Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews can stay. (laughs) An hour later, the cardinals were all around asking the Pope what had happened. And the Pope explained, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was one God common to all our religions. Then I waved my finger around him to show that this God was all around us. And he responded by pointing to the ground to say that God was right here with both the Jews and the Christians, where we sit. I pulled out the wine and the wafer to show that God can absolve us from our sins. And he pulled an apple, out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? <laughs> Meanwhile, the Jewish community had crowded around Moshe. So what happened, they asked. Well... <laughs> That's the way this story goes. Well, said Moshe, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. I told him that not one of us was leaving. Then he told me the whole city would be cleared of the Jews. I let him know we were staying right here. Yes, and then asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moshe. He took out his lunch and I took out mine.
Ah, so we wish them well in their conclave, you know. <laughs> they vote in silence? Uh-huh, I see. That's how it works, sure. So, somehow this connects, but I'm not sure. To the question of what can be redeemed, what have we done, each of us in the past, um, that needs to be let go of and redeemed. And one of the most fundamental teachings in Buddhism is the truth of impermanence. That everything changes is the truth that the Buddhist awakening is expressed by. Eventually, all changes and all can be transformed. And one of the important things to remember and to discover in the heart, in the psyche, is that it's never too late that we can always start again. Because the teachings of awakening or the liberation of the heart speak of that which is timeless and beginningless and endless. One of the things that's interesting, mythologically speaking, is that Some of the favorite stories in the Buddhist world, in the Himalayas and in Southeast Asia, are the stories about people who made the worst mistakes. You know how it is. They make good movies, too, right? So in the the Himalayan kingdoms and Tibet and Bhutan and northern India and so forth, it's the story of Milarepa, who was the great saint who um, first was a black magician and actually was was encouraged by his mother um, to take revenge on the parts of the family that had stolen all the family's wealth. Um, Usually we think about Milarepa and we don't talk so much about his mother, but she actually figures quite strongly in the story too, and they both have to work it out somehow. But there he does all these terrible things, and they love to tell the story about all the terrible things Milarepa does. And then finally, through tremendous effort and... and, uh, Um, skillful teaching on the part of his Lama Marpa, his life is transformed. And in the same spirit, in Burma and Thailand and Southeast Asia, there is a story of Angulimala, who was uh, a murderer, a serial killer, um, who it said became a great sage and a great saint. And the story of Angulimala is of this young boy who was born into the kind of near the edges of the court of one of the small kingdoms there. And when the astrologers were consulted about him as he was born, he, uh, it said that he was born under the robber star. Apparently, astrologically speaking, there are certain stars that are not very good to get born under, and he was born under that one. And so it was destined in some way that he might be a murderer um, or a killer in some fashion or a robber. Um, that's an interesting question. I remember the first time I've done interviews now for 30 years working with people in meditation. I remember the first time I sat in an interview and somebody told me that they had murdered some people. And first I wasn't quite sure how to respond. <laughs> and then finally uh, what I asked was, well, you know, have you stopped? <laughs> <laughs> Just a few basic facts to get straight. Fortunately, they had, but anyway. (laughs) So here was Angulimala, born under the wrong star, as it said. So 
basically, if you look at the myth, it means by temperament. He was powerful and charismatic and tended toward trouble, as many young people that I know are, especially young men. And he was brought up very carefully um, to prevent this happening. Um, and he became quite interested spiritually and found this great yogi and teacher and progressed and became even more powerful through his concentration of mind and his yogic practices. But he was so good that the people around him became quite jealous. And the other students created all these false stories and somehow poisoned the mind of his teacher to say that this young student who was so good was going to turn against him and maybe even kill him. And out of jealousy, you know how jealousy works, how painful it is. And out of the religious rigidity, you may have noticed some of that in the world as well, if not in yourself. Um, there came this great destructive energy and the sense of revenge grew. And um, finally the teacher said, well, if you want to fulfill your destiny as my student, you have to go and bring me back a garland with a, a thousand fingers of people that you killed. Um, as a serial killer, you take their little finger and one joint of their little finger and string it and make a, a mala, a set of beads, out of this. And then you will have proven yourself to be a true disciple and I will give you the mantle. And so he became out. He became this, this somewhat crazed murderer. Um, and you hear the story and you think, how could anybody do that? But then again, you look at whether it's suicide bombers in different fashions or um, martyrs in all different traditions and realize that it's not so far away, actually. And so he became the most fearsome bandit in, in India and he lived in the Jalini forest and he fulfilled his teacher's, as the story is told, his teacher's instruction up to 999 people. You know, these are all mythological numbers. It just means a lot, basically, when you say a thousand. It means um, entering into the state of consciousness of death. And the Buddha happened to be wandering nearby and heard how frightened everyone was to go in this forest. And the Buddha said, oh, how interesting. Buddhas are different than other people. Some people are afraid of things and they run away. And Buddhas hear things that are frightening and say, oh, how interesting. Let's see what's happening. And the other said, no, 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 don't go, don't go. But he felt, as he looked deeply, a tremendous compassion for this man who was so spiritually twisted in his consciousness. And so as the story is told, the Buddha, instead of running away from this terrifying killer, walked deep in the forest until finally Angulimala started to chase after him. And by his magic powers, the Buddha appeared to be still, very st just standing there quite still. And no matter how fast Angulimala ran, he couldn't catch up to the Buddha. And he started to yell at him, stop, stop. I have never run after one like you. I could run, um, I could catch a swift horse. I can run so fast and yet I can not catch you, stop. And as the story tells, the Buddha says, I have stopped Angulimala. It is you who have not stopped. You've not stopped killing. You've not stopped harming others. And in another version of the story, the Buddha says, Angulimala, I will stop, but you must do something for me. Angulimala says, what? He says, pull your sword and cut off the limb of that tree. 
and Angulimala cuts off the limb of the tree. And then the Buddha looks back in his eyes and says, now put it back on. And Angulimala says, but I cannot do that. And the Buddha looking at him with great compassion says, your great powers are so limited they can only destroy life. What about the power to bring life? I have stopped, Ungulimala. I have stopped all harm to living beings. My heart is at rest. And hearing his words in the story, the nobility in Ungulimala's heart arose. And he said, I have seen true greatness. I have seen true fearlessness. And threw his weapons into a pit and bowed and asked to follow the Buddha, asked for his forgiveness. And the Buddha, knowing his heart, said, come with me and become a monk in the order of followers. So this is kind of the gist of the story of Angulimala. And it's very much, again, like the story of, of Milarepa in the Himalayas, seeking revenge on those who had stolen his family wealth and taken advantage of his mother and his siblings. And after Milarepa had committed the terrible crimes through black magic of killing many of those who had harmed his family, he became so grief-stricken and said, I have made so much suffering that I was filled with remorse for the crimes I had done and obsessed by the harm I had done, for, done to others and realized I could not continue this way. And in fact, whether it's in San Quentin or here in these stories or maybe here in this room, what you discover when people really look inside is that we want redemption. We want a transformation of our heart because the suffering that we carry from things that we've done is too much. We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages, says Albert Camus. Our task is not to unleash them on the world, it is to transform them in ourselves and in others. And so we each have this task of redemption. And Angulimala, slowly trained with the Buddha and made his way back across India with the other monks over many weeks. And one day the Buddha saw the war chariots of King Pasanadi and surrounded by armed soldiers. And he said to the king, who he knew, are you going to war? And the king said, no, I'm trying to track down the most evil bandit in the countryside, the terrifying man. And then the Buddha said, suppose he could be transformed. And the king shook his head and said, no one of this ilk can be transformed. And the Buddha said, suppose he became virtuous and wise. And the king said, it seems impossible, but I would bow to such a change. Then come with me, said the Buddha, to the forest glade. And the great king was there seated by the Buddha, and then the Blessed One said, and here is Angulimala, and pointed to a monk nearby. And the king grew alarmed and fearful, and his hair stood on end, as it says in the story. And the Buddha said, do not be afraid and fear not, for this man comes from a noble family and was misguided in his life, and now he has renounced all violence to the smallest of creatures. And Angulimala spoke and said it was true, and the king marveled at the possibility of the transformation of the heart and bowed to Angulimala. 
you'd say, okay, now they live happily ever after, you know. But it didn't quite work out that way because when Angulimala went out to collect food, people would see him and either they were terrified and they wouldn't give him food and run away, or even worse, they would shout and throw things at him. And one morning he was out on alms round with the Buddha and passed by the home of a woman in danger and in difficult labor. And he had now opened with compassion to all those who suffered. And he asked, as a monk, is there a way I can assist? And the Buddha said, you can offer your blessing. Well, who would want the blessing of such a person? And the Buddha said, here is the blessing you must give. Since my birth, I have not harmed a single being. And by the, the virtue and truth of this statement, may you be healed. Well, of course, nothing happened. And then Angulimala shook his head and said, but this is not true, sir. And the Blessed One said, then change, the wor- change this by one word. Since my noble birth, my birth into the follower of the Dharma, I have not harmed a single being. And by this truth, may you and your child be safe. And they were. And he became a great healer because he had created so much suffering and seen so much suffering and looked with such deep compassion that people began to come to him for healing. Some of them. But others, when he would go out, were still angry and frightened and, in fact, would throw sticks and stones at him. And the Buddha, as it says in the text, says, this is your karma coming to fruition. Bear it, O noble one. Bear it with a wise and compassionate heart. And thus you will transform it. A poem from Rilke. See how this fits in here. This is from Sonnets to Orpheus, this beautiful new translation by uh, Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroad of your senses, the meaning discovered here. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow, and to the rushing water speak, I am. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into change. And somehow, what this story tells us is that wisdom and the training of the heart can triumph over temperament. And it's really the story of nature and nurture, in a way, for you psychologists and sociologists. Even if you're born under the robber star, there is a kind of neural plasticity, as it's called these days, and the great kind of scientific experiments that are happening in recent years on meditators and Tibetan lamas and so forth, you know, the cover of Time magazine and so forth. The gist of the experiments show that 
the notion which we've had for a long time in modern neuroscience that the brain stops growing at about age 20 was completely incorrect and that the brain is recreating itself all the time and not only the brain but the mind as well and so whatever temperament you're born in and whatever your form of the body of fear the small sense of self that's frightened that we all carry whatever your temperament whatever habits of fear they can be transformed you too can be released you can be redeemed you can be free do you believe this do you some do I'm glad to hear it what this story does you should believe it because it's true (laughs) you'll see you'll see what this story does mythologically is it describes the incredible suffering of misguided clinging to religion and spirituality or in fact to any kind of point of view the thousand fingers any form of fundamentalism or fanaticism and there's every kind Hindu and Jewish and Muslim and Christian and even Buddhist fundamentalists there are there aren't as many but there are some and I have a hard time with them and then I say oh it's just you know something to bow to right but it's not just these big stories it's in your marriage or with your ex I could ask how many of you have exes but it's all right and how many of you are exes whoops (laughs) not only do you have but you are you know and it's all the stuff that happens around the will that someone leaves who gets the money and who doesn't or what she did or he did you know all those stories I mean it's not just um, redemption in ancient India or in the Himalayas of Milarepa but it's a part of our human life and experience that we all must seek look how he abused me he beat me threw me down and robbed me says the Buddha perpetuate such thoughts and live in hate look how he abused me and beat me threw me down and robbed me abandon such thoughts and return to love in this world hatred never ends by hatred this is the ancient and eternal law in this world hatred never ends by hatred but by love alone is healed this is the ancient and eternal law even in great delusion even in that which creates great suffering there's a possibility of change the mind creates the abyss said one of my teachers and the heart crosses it and we can look at all the places of conflict in the world and then wish might they remember wherever they are might they remember that people can change that there's another possibility how far is it between the stars and how much farther says Rilke is what's right here the distance for example between a child and one who walks by oh how inconceivably far everything is far in this way think how great the distance between a young girl 
and the boy she avoids and loves. Such a great line in about three words. Get the whole relationship, right? The boy she avoids and loves. How far it is between the stars and how much farther is what's right here. The distance, for example, between a child, that child of the Spirit, and one who walks by. Oh, how inconceivably far. And yet, the practice of meditation, the sacred attention and compassion that we remember when we stop and breathe and listen, invites us to a whole other dimension of being that we know as surely as we know our own name. And this is our own inner nobility of heart. And whether it's Nelson Mandela, who says thinking too well of a person often inspires them to, to live up to your uh, expectations. How's that? You know, and who invites his jailers to sit as guests of honor at his presidential inauguration. Or Aung San Suu Kyi, who's still mostly under house arrest in Burma, and says, how can anyone who has, not, who has learned to ignite the thunder flame of their own heart know defeat? For those who are capable of learning the hardest lessons that life has to offer, victory is ensured, is ensured. Those who have to tread the long and weary path of a life that sometimes seems to promise little beyond suffering need to develop the capacity to draw strength and find beauty from the hardships that trouble their existence, to make that which is noble out of your very difficulties. And it's possible, it is really possible to break the spell, the trance of separateness and fear, confusion, unworthiness, in a moment to step back into the stillness, the vastness of our own heart and mind, and listen from the place of nobility. We can make our minds so like still water, says Yeats, that beings gather around us, that they may see their own images, and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We're asked to do this in spiritual life, to live from this place of nobility and stillness that listens, listens from the heart. Someone described the American poet Randall Jarrell. He was a great, you might say, a dangerous listener. It's a wonderful phrase to listen that deeply to someone. And when we return to our own nobility, then even the kings will bow to us, as they did in the story of Angulimala. That is, when we can take the measure of suffering that is given to us and transform it in our heart to compassion. And yes, even though Angulimala went out and sometimes they threw rocks at him and he had to face the consequences of his pain, his heart was so transformed Overcome any bitterness, say the Sufis. Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us 
is endowed with a certain measure of this cosmic pain, you are called upon to meet it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. Story here somewhere. A woman in great distress over the death of her child came to the master for comfort. He listened to her patiently while she poured out all her tales of woe. He sat with her and did not move away. And finally he responded softly, I cannot wipe away your tears, beloved one. I can only teach you to make them holy. Redemption, starting a new beginner's mind. This is a question we will all face in business, with our neighbors, in our family, in marriage, in the ways that we serve in the society around, between nations. We do, because we hurt one another and we struggle with one another and Anybody who says that doesn't happen is not paying attention. I mean, we all know it. In this act of cooking, I bid you farewell, writes Ed Brown, wonderful Zen cook. Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open, and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I withheld for so long. Bear it, O noble one, says the Buddha. And we can bear it and transform the world with our dignity. We can do it, each in our own way. Monday night, a couple or a few years ago, we had a visitor who was a man that I admire very much, Ari Ratanada, Gandhi of Sri Lanka, who's very much involved in the peace between the Civil War factions that's, that's been the peace movement that's grown in Sri Lanka. And um, very much involved with the, right now, with the, um, trying to heal the terrible effects of the tsunami. But one of the things, Ari Ratana was a high school teacher, a science teacher, and then he began this organization to empower people to forgive one another and to support collectively in community the building of schools and roads and so forth. But as he was doing that, he became um, known to some as a troublemaker because he was shaking up the status quo and so forth. And some of the people who were worried about what he was doing hired the most notorious kind of gangster in Sri Lanka, a man named Chopi, a lord of the underworld, to uh, kill Ariratana. And the plan was to be carried out at a Buddhist center where Ariratana would be speaking filled with many people. Somehow it got leaked out and Ari Ratana heard about the plan the day before it was to happen. So that evening, in the dead of night, he went to Chopi's house and stood before the man known as the King of Killers and said, Chopi Aya, I am here, Ari Ratana, who you are planning to kill tomorrow. Please do not desecrate the sacred Buddhist shrine with the blood of a beggar like me, nor harm the innocent lives of others who are around me. 
If you are to do so, you must kill me here. Please do not do it there. And the window opened. (laughs) And the killer looked out and said, come in, sit down. You know how it is, right? And they spoke for a long time. And after a long time, Choppy said, I cannot kill you. And from that moment on, he became one of his greatest supporters and protectors and admirers. And that's been so for the last two decades in Sri Lanka. So these are the kind of great stories that one can tell. And maybe they trickle down into our moment-to-moment little stories because we have them all in our own way to take the sufferings and difficulties and instead transform them through this capacity of the heart, of redemption, of letting go, of living from the most noble and beautiful understanding that we carry. I was reading this week a book, The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness by a Harvard Medical School professor, Dr. Groupman. And in it, he tells a a story of, in his own life, partly I think what got him to write the book, he worked a lot with many cancer patients and looked at the spirit of hope and possibility that kept them alive most strongly. And then he tells the story of how he um, had been pretty athletic, and then he wrecked his back, I forget quite what happened, in some accident and had a series of surgeries, and ended up in tremendous pain and unable to move very much, and so limiting his life, lying on, on um, ice packs every night and limiting his movement, and that it lasted for 15 years. He couldn't hardly do anything, lift his kids or anything. And finally, after he'd exhausted all the medical options and he was just living that way, someone said, you should go and see this doctor over at uh, Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. Um, he's not easy to work with, but he might have something for you. I don't know, he's got quite a reputation, this guy. So we went to see this physician. And they checked out all the medical things, the, the narrowing of the place where the nerve comes out in the spine and the, all of the um, uh, inflammation and scar tissue from the surgeries that he'd had and so forth that made his pain. And the doctor looked at him and said, I can't take your pain away. He said, but you're worshipping at the wrong altar. You are worshiping the God of pain. And if you worship the God of pain, the God of pain will take everything from you. Oh, if I move a little bit, it's going to get worse. I better not move. If I go here or do that, I better not do that because it will get worse. And pretty soon, pain will determine what you can do in your life. He said, if I were you, I would turn around and find something better to worship. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if you come here, we'll give you a program, and it might take a year or so to get your strength back. It won't take your pain away, but I don't see anything medically that says that you can't walk, run, move, do many of the things that you used to do if you're willing to just bear the suffering that's given to you. And he said, really? He said, I didn't want to believe it after all those wasted years. You know, that's what you have to let go of. Remember? All those, oh God, I wish I'd started then. And then, you know, the unworthiness and the shame, oh no, I didn't do that. But it's not too late you can start again now. And so he did. And he said, I went into the clinic and it was frightening because here were people doing the worst things that you could do for your back. There were people lifting baskets filled with bricks and moving them from one place to another, you know, and the kind of things that, you know, no, no, you're not supposed to do. And yes, you had to work up to it, starting with one brick. 
But by the, by the end of a year, he said, I was running again. I was picking up my children. And yes, it hurt some, but I had my life back. So this is the physical equivalent. Now, one of the things that happens, at least as I tell this story, these stories, in speaking about Milarepa and Angulimala and even Ariratana, that they're very male stories in a way. There's a whole kind of masculine side to this set of stories. So there's a story I love to tell because um, it touched me so much, um, and I tell it periodically, but it seems fitting for this talk this evening. And that is um, 10 years ago or so when my father died, I was leading, I was on the East Coast, and I was supposed to lead a workshop at a big conference in Washington. And I spent time with my father just when he was dying, and then we were going to do the funeral a week later, and I went to my conference for a bit. And then some good friends, Clarissa Pinkola Estes and Rabbi Zelman Schachter and Sultri Malioni took over my workshop for me so I could go to my father's funeral. And I t got on the train to go up to Philadelphia. And I sat down next to this interesting-looking African-American man um, around my age, young at that time, right? And uh, anyway, we got into conversation. And it turned out, Robert Brown was his name, it turned out, I told him what I did, you know, I told him that I was in sales, which I sometimes do, right? <laughs> sometimes I tell him I'm in theater, right? But anyway. Um, and he told me that he'd been in India for a while. Um, he'd actually been in the Foreign Service and quite interested in Indian teachings, but that he quit the Foreign Service after some years when he was called on the carpet in the embassy for overpaying his servants. And all of a sudden he realized he was in the wrong business. Now he worked in D.C. for a program um, that uh, served uh, young men who were incarcerated, very young men, um, primarily those who had been convicted of homicide. So we're still in the same theme where we started with Angulimala and Milarepa. And he said, let me tell you a story. He said, one young man who came into our program um, was in the gangs, and at age 14 he shot and killed another youth on the street around the same age that he didn't even know. It was just a way of proving himself to get in the gang. It was a kind of initiation. And he was caught and trial and convicted. And at the end of the trial, when the sentence um, verdict was passed, yes, he's guilty, the mother of the boy who was shot stood up and looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to kill you, and sat back down. And the young man was then taken off to juvenile prison, age 14, um, for several years at least of a sentence. And the mom of this boy who was killed six months, nine months later, began to visit him. She came and saw him said, I need to talk to you, and they had a little bit of a conversation. It felt weird to him, and before she left, she gave him a little money to buy, have some money to buy stuff in, in jail there. And she started to visit him periodically, once in a while, and at the end of the three years, because he'd been living on the streets mostly, when he was going to get out, she said, uh, so where are you going to work? He said, I don't know, I don't have any place to work. 
said, well, I got a friend who, you know, has got a company, maybe you could work there, and she lined him up for a job. And when he was released, she said, so where are you going to live? Don't know, didn't have any idea. Said, well, I got a spare room, you know, you could stay with me for a while anyway. So he did. He moved there and worked, and she cooked. And after about eight months, she called him into the living room one day, said, I need to talk to you. He said, yes. Said, remember that day in court when I stood up and I said, I'm going to kill you? He said, yes, ma'am, I'll never forget that. She said, well, I did. I didn't want a young man who could kill my son or anyone else in cold blood to still be alive on this earth. And so I said about changing you, I started to visit you and bring you things and talk to you. And then I got you to be in my house and got you a job and cook for you and got you a place to stay. And now you're not that same boy that did that. You're not him. He's gone now. You know, and I don't have a son anymore. All I have this house is, an em- ha- ha- is this house and this empty room, and I need someone, so I want to know if you'll stay here and if you'll be my son. And so she adopted the boy who killed her son, and he stayed with her. And this is the story that Robert Brown told me. So one says, what is possible when we live from a place of our own inner nobility? Today I start my 28th year here. I laughed hard when I read that you wrote, I might as well be a monk. One of the nicknames they call me is the Monk of Trenton. Wasn't always known that way. The first 10 years I was known as a bad man, mean and dangerous. In 85, I was in ad seg for stabbing a guy, and my mentor appeared in the form of a hitman for the Irish mob, who also was a yogi. He gave me a copy of the Anapanasati Sutra and convinced me that I could not live a life out of anger and rage. He put me on hatha yoga in place of martial arts and had me do pranayama and sitting meditation. And my journal records, when I was young, I wanted to be accepted. After I was accepted, I wanted power. And after I had power, I realized that power without wisdom leads to sorrow. And after acquiring a small amount of wisdom, I no longer desired to be accepted. I desired solitude. All life requires change from within. And my journal records, I had a dream of violence so bad I woke up. Upon remembering the dream, I asked, is this me? Where does all this violence come from? And that night I closed the page of that journal with the words, so ends this part of my life. For the next two years, I didn't come out of my solitary except to mop the cell block and tears once a day. I gave away all my property except my books. I gave myself to yoga, pranayama, meditation. I followed the breath for a long time and practiced mindfulness and nothing seemed to be happening. And then I realized that the objects of my awareness began to have texture. By texture, I mean depth. This texture is deceptive because it arises from the memory or imagination. And soon the texture dissolves and reveals clarity. This is a moment of present awareness without the distorting effects of past or future. I don't know if this is what's supposed to happen, but it's what happened to me. It was during this time period that people started calling me the monk of Trenton, and I haven't harmed anyone since then. 
what do we do with the suffering given to us? What do we do with the mistakes we've made and the problems that we face? What do we do with the energy of people around us that's so hard? What is the source of our own dignity and nobility? Is it possible for you and I, for each of us, to remember that this too can be transformed? Followers of the way, the most important teaching, the world is full of second chances. In our life, redemption is always possible. I remember listening to Julia Child on the radio, tiny little ways. She says, remember, if you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? (laughs) And then another day I was listening to Eleanor Holmes Norton, wonderful black congresswoman from D.C., and she was talking about the African-American support for George Wallace. You know, and how terrible George Wallace had been for a long time as a governor, and then how he had changed his life, and how he actually became a governor that that, uh, folks that you couldn't imagine wanting to support him did, including herself. She said, I never thought I would see the day in myself of doing that. So maybe it's time to talk to your ex, you know, or your lover, or to go back to work to talk to your boss, or that person who's difficult, or maybe not talk to them. Maybe it's time to go listen to them in a different way. And to remember what's possible. Because wherever we are, we can stop and breathe and listen, listen with the wisdom of the heart. We can start again, plant new seeds, If you bring a lamp into a dark place, it does not matter if it's been dark for a day or a hundred years, it will be illuminated. And one woman went in to see Zen Master Sasaki, Joshu Sasaki Roshi. She'd been practicing and she had all these visionary experiences and she had this whole experience of dying to her small sense of self and kind of opening to the whole world. But she was confused because she had young children and she just wanted to stay in the Zen center. And she said, I feel like I've died in this. You know, I don't know how to go back and be a mother and a wife and a, you know, employee and all these things. And just sat there confused. And the Zen master looked at her and said, death okay, resurrection okay too. (laughs) And we do that. We die. We suffer, we go through all these difficulties, and then we can be born again in a new moment, in a new consciousness. It's possible for each of us to plant new seeds, to change directions. The mystery of consciousness, like a river or an ocean or a waterfall, is inviting a new birth, is inviting a beginner's mind, is inviting of the opening of the heart is inviting of our nobility, no matter what has happened to us. Having no gift of strategy or arms, no secret weapon and no walled defense, 
I shall become a citizen of love, that little nation with the blood-stained sod where even the slain have power, the only country that sends an ambassador to God. Renouncing self and crying out to end all wars, I seek a land that lies all unprotected like a sleeping child. Nor is my journey reckless and unwise. Whoever doubts that love is an effective weapon will meet with great surprise. The little nation, the citizen of love. Let your eyes close for a moment. Sit comfortably. back to your own breath and body, the spaciousness, courage of the heart. And let yourself reflect on what it's time to end or let go of. and what wants to be started anew, no matter what has passed. Let yourself reflect on what asks for redemption within yourself. within others around you. One asks to be seen from your great and noble heart. If you could plant new seeds, and nurture a new direction and redeem your life in a new way, what would this be? Trust this understanding, trust what comes It only takes a moment to talk to the heart, to listen with the heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.